Amen. I encourage you to be seated. Thank you, worship team, all our worship leaders for leading us into the presence of the throne room. Amen. I release the children through grade four into the classes that are prepared for them. As we uh, up here turn into the letter of James, James, where we'll be looking at. We're in James chapter 5. If you've been following along with us, you know that we've gone through the letter of James along with some of the other churches in the area, and we're coming to James chapter 5 together today, and uh, kind of excited to look at this with you. It's a powerful chapter with all sorts of truths that have been penetrating my heart this week, and um, bringing great opportunities for growth into my life. I love the fact that every time we open God's Word, we have a chance to have our lives be changed by the power that's contained within. My prayer for each of us is that we can get to a point where we move beyond reading God's Word to allowing God's Word to read us. And so, Lord God, as we do that today, as we open your Word, we expose ourselves to you. God, I pray that you'd break down the walls in in each of our lives, in each of our hearts, the the walls that keep us from seeing the areas of our life that are not yet given over to you. And I pray that your word would do the surgery that you've told us it would do, that it would penetrate and it would cut away the things, Lord, that are harmful to us in our lives. Even the things that we might hold on to that are so special, Lord, to us, but you see there are things that need to be taken away. So through this text today, Lord, and through your Holy Spirit illuminating it for us, and, and then, Lord, convicting us of it, his job, his work, we open ourselves to that together, God, today, so that we can be your people, your children, your family. And we pray this in your name. Amen. James chapter 5. Amazing letter, James. And as I've been thinking about this and preparing my heart again to to be able to open God's word to you, I wonder what it was like to be the half-brother to Jesus, to be raised with Jesus in, in, in the house. And, you know, some of you guys who have siblings who, you know, you end up comparing yourself to your siblings. What would it be like to compare yourself to Jesus, you know? And, and as he was growing up and, and, and to be in that household, and Scripture tells us that, that James, as his half-brother, didn't believe in who he was until after the resurrection, And so we know that as he grew up, he saw Jesus and he saw the things that he was doing and who he was, but but somehow there was something that kept him from understanding and believing in that until Jesus was raised from the dead. But then he came to a point where he understood. And the thing that I love about the letter that he wrote is that in it we see several different spots where he takes some of the teachings of Jesus and and puts them in his own words so you can see that that the impact of Jesus in his life was real and was significant, and that can impact our lives as well. One of the things as I've looked at the book as a whole, and I'm so grateful for Steve and Tim for having taken uh, each one of them a chapter as well, and I think as we've looked at it together, the thing that we can see that James calls us to is a genuine faith 
to be able to examine ourselves, <coughs> excuse me, to see if we have a genuine faith. And, and that genuine faith plays itself out in a spiritual wholeness. And, and we understand and know that James talks about the fact that there's, that even the, even the demons believe that Jesus came and lived and died, and they believe that he's God, but it does them no good. It has no salvific effect for them. And yet, he tells us and calls us to a higher faith, and that faith is a gift from God, and so it comes into our lives, and, and for each one of us who by the touch of God have been converted and, 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 and adopted into his family as his children, it's because of the faith that he's given us. And as that faith grows and as it nurtures, it develops into a spiritual wholeness in our lives, and James in many ways is a wonderful letter that allows us to stop and put ourselves against a, a, a marker, measuring ourselves to see where have we come in this level of spiritual wholeness. It's not to make us feel inadequate, I don't think, as much as it is to just spur us on, to continue to do more and more and more to become that who God's designed for us to be. Today, our big idea is that spiritual wholeness affects our attitudes and our actions, our attitudes and our actions. And we have five different segments of this chapter that we're going to look at together to see how that plays out for us. So the first thing we see is that spiritual wholeness affects our purity, or our, I'm sorry, our priority and our perspective. And it's there in the first few verses. Now listen, you rich people. Weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth is rotted and, your mo and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay, pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You've condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. Isn't that encouraging? Amen. James gets right to the point here in this last chapter. We need to understand this is a letter that's been written. And for us, as we have our copy of God's Word, we see the, the chapters and the verses, and we see the headings and the subtitles and things like that, but that's not the way this letter was written. This was written as a flowing letter with thoughts that continue on each other. If I write a letter to Karen, I don't divide it into chapters and verses and put little headings and things. I just let my thoughts flow and let, let that meander sometimes into things that I'm longing for her to hear. And it's the same with this letter. And so we have to be careful not to let the chapter divisions keep us from understanding the flow of the letter. And it's interesting, he comes to this now listen. And Tim helped us understand last week that now listen is listen up, pay attention, look here, let's, let's look at this, it's important, listen, okay? And, and so he gets their attention and he says, you who are rich, weep and wail because you're going to be experiencing misery, now, oh my goodness, it's like, what, what does this mean? Now, for many people, they think that this is James all of a sudden breaking out the ladder and coming into a place that will, will be talking to people who aren't part of the church. 
But I don't believe that that's true. I believe he's just continuing to talk to this group of believers. And he's saying to them, pay attention to this. In Scripture, the rich and the poor are put in contrast many, many times because we have to come to a place where we give up everything for God. And it's not that God has anything against wealth. He doesn't. Many of the men of God of great faith were men of great wealth as well. What God is is longing for is that our perspective on wealth is correct. And the way that we put a priority on wealth is correct. And that's what this passage speaks to. Now, the particular people that he probably was talking to here were landowners who would have been part of the agricultural trade, which was a major, uh, major way for people to get wealthy in the day that this letter was written. Because as people accumulated land, and if people couldn't make payments, those who had money would accumulate that land, and they would continue to accumulate more and more land and bring in the food and then charge for the food, and they'd make money. Now, the way that they would do that many times is by having labor that was grossly underpaid if they were paid at all. Many times they'd have people doing the work who weren't getting paid but were hoping to get just enough food to survive. And many times they were punished for taking that food that they needed just to survive. And so the people that he's talking to are are people who have really taken advantage of other people in order to gain wealth for themselves. And so that's the setting for this. And I believe it's in this letter and it's building on everything else that he's been teaching because, again, spiritual wholeness impacts our priority and our perspective. When we come to a place in our life where we're developing more and more of a spiritual wholeness because of the relationship that we have with God is growing more and more intimate in nature, the things of earth begin to fade away. The old song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that's what I believe James is coming to here. He's saying, listen, look at what you're doing. Check it out. You're hoarding wealth. You're hoarding wealth. You're living on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Think about what you're doing. Paul later will say, listen, we don't fix our eyes on what is seen, but on what is unseen, because what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. James is saying, listen, pay attention. As I've looked at this and considered this and thought about it, it's this, it's this thought process that I, I need to learn in my life that I need to despise the things that I can't own so that I can securely grasp the things that I do own. I need to learn to despise the things that I can't own so I can securely grasp the things that I do own. And what do I mean by that? Do you know that nothing you own on earth you really own? It owns you, ultimately. Karen's car broke down this week, had a little problem. We took it into the dealer to get it fixed and found out that what my definition of a little problem is is much different than his definition of what a little problem is. And so now we're left with this thousands of dollars, and what do we do with that? 
So as we look at that, the things of this earth are not things that we own. They're things that we steward, that we care for. And they've been given to us as children of God and entrusted to us to use for the king's glory, to be using those for, for the future. Vance Havner, and I can't do justice to the way that he told this story, but he told about the devil coming and talking to a Christian and saying to the Christian, if, if you follow me, I'll give you everything you could want. And the Christian looks at the devil and says, well, devil, what could you give me? I've got eternity in heaven. I've got, I've got inheritance beyond anything that you could imagine. You've got nothing I need. So the devil comes back and tries a different tactic. He says, if you don't follow me, I'm going to take away everything you have. And the Christian looks at the devil and says, you can't take anything I have. I've given up everything to follow the Lord. Everything's stored up with him. You can't take anything away from me. Vance Havner says, what are you going to do with a guy like that? You can't, can't tempt him by taking stuff away. and can't tempt him by giving things. When we get a proper perspective of what we own and what we don't own, we begin to put our labors towards the things that we do. Of course, James' language here just hearkens us to remember Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, your wealth is rotted, your moths have eaten your clothes, and your gold and silver are corroded. We understand gold and silver doesn't corrode. It does in God's economy, not here. Jesus said, don't store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store for yourself treasures in heaven. Moth and rust do not destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart is also. This is unbelievable truth of taking a look at what have I been given by God to steward for him, and how am I handling it? I remember a few years ago, Karen and I, it's quite a few years ago now. Time flies, doesn't it, dear? Um, I remember quite a few years ago, we were at a, a revival meeting, and the pastor was up there, and, and he said he was talking about giving and, and, and getting in the kingdom. And, and so he talked about how many of you are honoring the Lord with your giving. And of course, I sat there and thought, I'm doing pretty good here. You know, got the tithe, and you know, yeah, I'm doing all right. And then he said, how many of you are honoring the Lord with your spending? I'm thinking to myself, I hate it when a preacher starts meddling. <laughs> yeah. Because I realized at that point in time, in my mind I had it set that if I had given a certain amount aside to God, that was his and the rest was mine. It's all his. And when we come to an understanding of that and we say, okay, Lord, we're your stewards of that which we give and that which we keep, and how can we steward that carefully? And as your servants and as your slaves, how can we be using that for your glory? Not in self-indulgence, but in sacrificial service and giving. And again, it doesn't mean you give everything away, but it does mean we check our priority and our perspective. I found a fascinating website, and uh, got to check my email. Okay, so, um, no, I, I found this great website, 
And it says this, it says, if the church of America were to tithe, okay, there would be an additional $165 billion for churches to use and distribute. Isn't this fascinating? The global impact would be phenomenal. $25 billion could relieve global hunger. $12 billion could eliminate illiteracy. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation issues. $1 billion would fully fund all overseas missions work, and that would leave $100 billion left over. Wow. Think of that. So what are we doing, what am I doing, with the resources that have been entrusted to me? Do I have the proper priority and perspective? And are there any ways in which I still live with a priority on self-indulgence, which reveals an inappropriate perspective of eternity? And how can I gain an eternal perspective that truly reveals my priority? So great questions to ask. The next thing James says, I believe, is that spiritual wholeness affects your patience and your perseverance. Verse 7, be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for autumn and spring rains? You too be patient. Stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So spiritual wholeness affects our patience and our perseverance. And again, if we ignore the subtitle there and just keep reading, it's as he's building on this perspective and priority, he says, be patient until the Lord's coming. So again, we see the perspective piece. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. And it's like, okay. You see, here's the deal. <coughs> Excuse me. Ricola. <coughs> okay, now you're all ready to hear. <clears throat> Amen. <laughs> see, if I would use less of my voice, but I can't. Jesus is coming. Thank you, Susie. This isn't heaven. This isn't it. And we need to be patient and wait for heaven. So what that means is this. It means that we don't make this the place where we try to find comfort. And as we're patient, waiting for heaven, James gives us an illustration. He says it's like the farmer. The farmer plants his crops and waits for the rain. Now, Dennis was here this morning. Do we have any farmers here in this? All right. Oh, Lester, you're here. Okay. Lester, so you plant your crops, and then as you're waiting, you don't do anything. You just... Sit around. Everybody knows farmers, they plant their field, 
They sit around and they wait, and then the crop comes in, and they harvest it, and they take the money and buy new equipment. Right? Of course not. Of course not. The farmers are working. They're doing all sorts of things while they're waiting. And as we wait patiently, there's things we need to do. Deuteronomy 11. We're going to get through this. Are you ready? Okay. I'm taking it up with me. Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy 11. Deuteronomy is the second reading of the law by Moses. And he's reading the law to the generation of the Israelites who are going to move into the promised land. The promised land is amazing. Israel is an amazing place, isn't it, Early? And if you go to Israel today, there are all sorts of crops because they've used the Jordan River to irrigate. And so science has allowed for, for the land to be much more fertile than it was at the time Deuteronomy was written. At the time Deuteronomy was written, the only way there were going to be crops is if God sent rain. And so they would be totally dependent upon God. And see, that's huge. In our day and age, we're not totally dependent upon God. We're able to produce snow. We can do all sorts of different things. But then, they would be totally dependent on him. Deuteronomy 11.13 says this, So if you faithfully obey the commands I'm giving you today, to love the Lord and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will send the rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil. I will provide grass in the field for your cattle, and you will eat and be satisfied. Don't miss this. We need to be busy as we're waiting patiently. I believe the, re- the reason James put this in his letter is because he wants us to consider the fact that as we wait patiently for the Lord's coming, we need to be faithfully obeying the commands of the Lord. We need to love the Lord. We need to serve him with all of our hearts. See, here's the deal. Over here at this moment in time, when you come to trust the Lord as your Savior, justification. Justification, right? Like this? Is that the sign? Justification? Yeah, justified. Mm -hmm. I'll sign it for you. Okay, high five. You leaving me hang here? Okay, there we go. All right, over here is glorification. Glorification is that moment in time where the Lord takes us into heaven and my redeemed soul will be blended with a redeemed body and I'll live with him forever. So justification, that moment in time when he rescues me from the penalty of sin and glorification when he takes me from the presence of sin. In the meantime, I live in this period of sanctification where I'm becoming more and more like God. 
And more and more, I, I understand that I am free from the power of sin. But it, the reason that the Lord doesn't just take me home the minute that I come to trust him as my Lord and Savior, the reason that I'm here is so that I can serve him. I'm here so that I can serve him and, and love him and reveal his love to a world that desperately needs to know him. And so as we're waiting patiently for the Lord's coming, our perspective is such that we know we're going to heaven and we know that anybody who doesn't know him isn't going to heaven, so we do whatever we can along the way to bring people into a knowledge of him. And James goes on and says, so don't grumble. Don't, don't grumble against each other, brothers and sisters. Big stuff. I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I'm waiting, I tend to grumble. I got a text from John Blank. He's at the airport. He had his flight to Guatemala where he's going to build a playground. The first flight got canceled, so he missed the adjoining flight and the next adjoining flight. Okay? Ever happened to anybody? Did anybody ever grumble when that happened to him? Uh-huh. Or you go to Walmart, right? And you're waiting in line. There's 14 registers and two are open. And you say, I am so glad that there are two registers open. I don't know why they don't have it right away. They got all those. Who are, you know, right? Okay, we tend to grumble. When we come to places where we need to be patient, we can grumble. And James says, don't do that. Paul says, stop biting and devouring each other. I had lunch with somebody on Friday. I spent the better time of that lunch period just grumbling against people. And I'm putting together this lesson to preach you, to you, right? Okay? How does this happen? How does this happen in my life? And how can I get to a place where in spiritual wholeness, I understand I don't need to grumble against people. I can wait patiently for the Lord. And, and as I do that, I'm able to see and, and, and wait for his harvest to come. And he says, you know that those who persevere are the ones who are blessed. I think we've all seen races where the runner's going along and all of a sudden something happens and he hurts his foot and he continues trying, and he's limping until he gets across the finish line, and everybody cheers, and the cameras all go on him because it's wonderful that he persevered and made it. James talks about this here because, listen, he understands and knows what it's like to be on this earth. We try to make it like heaven, but it's not. It's a place of suffering. And some of you are feeling like you got a broken foot, and you're trying to get through the finish line. You got a diagnosis, you got something that's going on in your life, you got relationships that are strained, you've got whatever it could be in your life that just makes it feel like you can't make it through. And you feel like, you're, like your foot's broken and you're trying to get through the finish line, but you just don't know if you can make it or not. James says, be patient, brothers, sisters. Be patient in your affliction. Be patient in your suffering. Don't grumble. Continue. Go on. Run through the tape. Persevere, and you will be blessed. Persevere in your spiritual wholeness. 
The next thing we see is that spiritual wholeness affects your probity. Okay, and you're all like, what is probity? Okay, well, I wanted to use integrity, but all the points of the outline start with P. So I went on this thesaurus and found a word that started with P that means integrity, and it's probity, okay? And um, so we all learn all sorts of things today. Isn't that helpful? James says, listen, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This is another place where he's taking the teaching of Christ and he's brought it and he's bringing it to the church and saying, listen, be careful how you make your vows. Make vows that are sincere. Make vows that are true. As a matter of fact, don't vow. Just say yes or no. Just live your life with such honesty that if something comes out of your mouth, people can be absolutely certain it's true. At the time James is writing, many people would vow on things that if something was vowed on that was of more value, it was a more sincere vow. If something was lesser value, it was a less sincere vow. And, and, and Jesus was like, don't do that. And James is saying the same thing. This can play out in our lives. Sometimes we can get swept away into some of the words of the worship songs. And what we're actually doing is we're saying vows to the Lord. Again, in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 23, Moses tells the children of Israel, if you make a vow to God, you better believe he's listening. So make sure you keep your vow. It's better to not make a vow than to make a vow that you're not going to keep. And that's the idea here. So as I look at this, and sometimes when the worship songs come, and I declare things as a vow to God, but I'm not living those things. I need to be careful. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't sing to the worship songs, because a lot of times in the Psalms what we see is David declares things, and, and, and he declares them because he longs for them to be true. And it's almost like, God, make this true in my life. Take my life, God. Please take my life and let it be all for you. And so that, that's a different than a vow, but if you say, my life is yours, and I declare this by vow, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. So how are the ways in our lives that that's happening? Are there, can every person that I meet trust that my words are true? And do I ever rationalize anything less than complete honesty? The next thing we see is that spiritual wholeness affects our prayers. And uh, that's, that comes up, it says, is any one of you in trouble, he should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. If any of you is sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced all crops. So, is any one of you in trouble? Pray. If anyone's happy, pray. It says sing praise, but, but actually what that is is, is pray. You think of the Psalms where, where people are happy and they just offer a psalm of praise to the Lord. When you're happy, sing praise, because who makes you happy? God. So if you're in trouble, pray. If you're happy, pray. 
If you're sick, pray. If you're feeling good, pray. If you're sitting down, pray. If you're laying down, pray. If you're standing up, pray. James is getting to the point, he's saying, listen, whatever you're doing, pray. Talk to God. Spiritual wholeness involves a constant and consistent conversation with the Almighty God. And he unpacks it, and he talks about elders coming and praying over people and making them well. And as he does that, he says, the prayer offered in faith makes the sick person well. It's not necessarily the, the prayer. It's not the oil. It's the prayer offered in faith. There is a healing prayer. Richard Foster, in his book on prayer, talks about the four steps of healing prayer. And the first step is to listen, to discern. What is it that is the thing that we should be praying for? The second step is to ask. <laughs> Seems elementary. But to ask for that healing. The third step is to believe. Believe that that healing can happen. Number four is to thank God, to thank him for hearing, to thank him for healing. What is it that you think God can't do? What do you think God can't do? That's a piercing question. How many times do I limit God because of the prayers that I offer to him? as we pray for healing for people, and I've done this, to pray boldly as God, as God has led us to pray for healing, to ask him to believe that he can do it, to thank him for hearing the prayers. I remember when I called some of the men of the church together for my mom when she was dying, and, and she had a, a, a herniated place, and and the doctor says, this needs to go back in, and, and if it doesn't go back in, you know. So we called a group of guys together, and we prayed, and we said, Lord, take your finger and push, push it back in. He did. He did. She died. She's healed. How does that all work? God heals but even in the healing, it's not a forever healing until that moment that he takes me into his presence. But we can pray boldly that God will heal here. The hearing will be restored. The cancer cells will be taken out of a body. That hearts will beat correctly. We can pray for those things. We can ask for those things. And we have a healing God. And we don't Pray in faith and trust him to heal. But listen, the prayer in faith has to be a prayer that's pure. Our faith has to be pure. The moment I come to trust God as my Savior, every sin of mine is forgiven, past, present, future. But I'm told to confess my sins. As a matter of fact, here it says, confess your sins one to another. So why don't you take a minute and just turn to the person next to you and confess your sins. No, I'm kidding. All right. But there is an aspect to that. Say, I had to call my friend Friday afternoon as I started studying this a little bit more. I had to call my friend and I have to say, I, I'm, I, 
I have to ask you to forgive me. I, I spent the whole time grumbling. And he said, I, I forgive you. He said, I, I came home and prayed for you because I could tell that you were in a place where you needed God to step into your life. And I, I prayed for you. See, that's a brother. You, you get that, right? Because we're part of the family. And families aren't perfect. But families have each other. And that's what we do here. That's what we do in the, in the family of God. We're all his children. And we give grace. See, we don't, we don't accuse, we intercede. And we give grace. And, and the reason that I confess my sin to my brother is so that my brother can offer me forgiveness from what I've offended him for, but also so I can clear myself with God. And if my prayers are going to remain unhindered, I have to get rid of the sin in my life. See, James would have understood this more than we do. Because James would have been coming from, from the, the Jewish mindset that is so amazingly wonderful and understands the corporate nature of a nation and how God views that. You remember the story of, of Achan. As, as Joshua led the people in the battle of Jericho and Achan decided to take some of the spoils and put them under his tent and thought, nobody's going to know, it'll be okay. But then when they went out to battle, people died because sin had come into the camp. And it was exposed that it was Achan. You see, if there's sin in the camp, God brings discipline. And I can think that my private sin doesn't do anything but affect me. But listen, it's not true. My private sin affects my relationship with my wife. My private sin affects my relationship with my kids. My private sin impacts my relationship with you. My private sin, you see, impacts the work of the kingdom of God. And we don't, we don't think of that. We don't understand that well. And so one of the reasons God is holy, and one of the reasons that we confess is because we're to be holy as he is holy. And our spiritual wholeness draws us into that. And it reminds us that we're part of the kingdom of God. And so we long to keep ourselves in short accounts with God and with each other. And our prayers will gain much more power as they're not hindered by the sin that stands in their way. Real quickly, the last one. Spiritual wholeness affects your participation. And again, it just builds. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, someone should bring him back. Remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save him from death and cover a multitude of sins. Another piece of the family. Another piece of priority. Another piece of perspective. All of it ties together. Listen, we're together. We're participating in the work of the Lord. Jesus came to seek and save that which was lost. And then he sent us to do that same thing. And as we look for those who are wandering, as we look and see how can we bring them back to the amazing truth, if they've wandered from the truth, and maybe it's one of you in this room who's wandering from the truth, and we can surround and pray for you. 
We don't turn our back on that. We don't say, man, that guy's really lost. Oh, well. We pray for that person. We try desperately to draw them back. Jesus went back for the one. That's what we do. And then we consider those who do not yet know Christ. And how can we keep them as they wander from the truth to find the truth for their own lives? As the choir and worship team comes up, some of you in this room have wandered from the truth. Some of you have have wandered from the truth. Or you're on the verge of doing that. Some of you know people who've wandered from the truth. Some of you have wondered, is this, is this real? It, it's felt just outside of your reach for your whole life. And you've wondered, what is truth? James, this letter calls us to remember and to understand and believe that it's by faith that we stand. It's by faith that we stay strong and we hold on to the truth. And it's by my faith, being strong, that I'm able to bring other people in and we're able to strengthen each other's faith. So God, as we sing this last song, you know each of our hearts, Lord. If we've wandered from the truth, draw us back. If we know people who've wandered from the truth and we've written them off, correct us and use us to help bring those people back so that we can save them from death and cover them from a multitude of sins. By faith, we pray in your name. Amen.